The reading is 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 12. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshemon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah, facing Jeshemon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David sent out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army and camped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping, because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. This is the word of the Lord. It's likely that uh, most of you have been in a situation like this. That is, you have been falsely accused, or you're working under people, perhaps a person, who seems to be not only rude, not only unjust, but he or she has it in for you, for no apparent reason. Under those circumstances, how are we to address our enemies, or govern ourselves. Now, the details of David's story are unlikely the details of your story. On the other hand, you probably can relate to a certain extent. Let me remind you of where we are with the story of David. David has slayed Goliath, And the popular opinion is moving in the direction of David and away from Saul, who is the standing king of Israel. David has more popularity. 
Saul is losing popularity. But more than that, David is the rightful heir to the throne, not because he's the son of Saul, but because when Saul, in his early days as king, violated God's will, God departed from him or left him. In addition to that, Samuel walked away from him. And in addition to that, Samuel anointed David to be the new king of Israel. All of this while Saul is still sitting as king. Now, I don't want to rush to the defense of Saul, but wouldn't that be an awkward position? The king in waiting, you know he's anointed, you know no one respects you like they respect David. All of that makes it difficult for Saul to be the king, no doubt. But it's not necessary under those circumstances, and as a matter of fact, not proper, to try to chase after David and kill him. Why? Because David has done nothing. As a matter of fact, he was anointed by Samuel, and by virtue of that, by God, to be the next king of Israel. But he did nothing, as we can see in 1 Samuel, to undermine Saul's authority. He was always his respectful servant. Yet in spite of that, Saul tries to kill him on two different occasions in the temple, in the uh, king's palace. And then from there, David runs and he's being chased through the valleys, through the wilderness, through the caves, through the desert. He's on the run constantly. There's no indication David has been the problem. It's just Saul cornering David. Now, by the way, this is the second time that Saul has cornered David. Two chapters previously to this, we have an episode very similar to it. As a matter of fact, it's so similar that on some occasions, people think they're the same story told two different ways. I don't agree with that. It seems to me they're two separate stories uh, told from two separate occasions. But on both occasions, Saul has David cornered, so to speak, but ironically, David has Saul cornered. As you know from the story that was just read, David enters the cave, and Saul, Abner, and the men are asleep, and he has the opportunity to kill him on the spot. Abishai says, let me do the job. I'll only strike him once. And David says, oh, no, you won't. You're not going to strike God's anointed. His blood won't be on my hands. He takes the spear and water bottle in the other cave earlier than this. He cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. On both occasions, like this occasion, he retreats from the place to a safe spot and cries out to the people who are there sleeping. First, he calls out in this chapter to Abner. He says, Abner. This is um, a paraphrase. You'll, you'll understand what I mean. Abner, hey, big guy. What's with you? You're supposed to be protecting the king, and you were asleep, and I could have struck him dead. You know what that means in military protocol, Abner? You deserve to be dead. You didn't do your job. What's up, Abner? As the text reads, the next thing that really happens is an answer not from Abner but from Saul. That's where the dialogue leads. Saul says, is that the voice of David, my son? 
are you serious? He's been chasing this man through the desert, doing his best to kill him at every turn. My son David. Like I said, this is the second time Saul has done this. In the previous cave, he did the same thing. In the previous cave, he says, David, my son, and he breaks into tears. Just like then, now on this occasion, he says, oh, David, you're the one who's righteous, not me. Well, when Saul cries out to David, David says to him, and I'll read the text, he says, yes, it is my Lord, the king, it's me. And then he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? Why are you trying to kill me, Saul? What have I done and what am I guilty of? I've done nothing. Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If God actually put you to up to this, if God is on your side, then let's have an offering. And let God be the arbiter and the judge and let's live in peace. If, however, men have done it, that is, incited you against me, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Get out of here. Go to the land where other people serve other gods, is in effect where David is saying. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. Don't kill me away from God's presence. May, may I inter interject something? If you're going to kill me, do it in God's presence. Don't kill me out here. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts for a partridge in the mountains. It's an image they would have understood well, hunting for a partridge in the mountains. A partridge which is moving throughout those crevices in that valley region, in the hill region, in the canyons, in the, the caves. They would hunt the partridge and uh, he was hard to find. That's what's happening, says David. You're hunting me down. Then Saul does what he did the last time. He says, I've sinned. You're more righteous than I am. Let's make peace. Or in other words, David, I've called off the war. Come on out. Either Saul is unstable, as we've seen on two different occasions. He's up here and then down there. He's trying to kill David and then he's asking for forgiveness. Either he's unstable or he's trying to draw David into a trap. Or both. I want you to notice what happens in this episode and the previous one. David accepts the apology, but doesn't take the bait. Makes me think of the words of Jesus. Be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. There is no admonition in Scripture that the enemies that we forgive we should actually turn our lives over to. Jesus, in effect, and David, 
by example. He says, I'll receive your apology, but I'm not going to walk into your house. I'm no fool. I understand your character. You do not have a track record of faithfulness. You're up, you're down, you're schizophrenic, and I can't trust you. But I'll forgive you. There are a number of lessons that you could uh, extract from this text, aren't there? I just have uh, three main lessons that I see. I know my three main lessons usually sound like 14, but they're really only three, which is why I reiterate them. Uh, the first one is this. I, I notice in this text that it's obvious, isn't it? David refuses to strike God's anointed. There is a, a rich tradition that David was a part of that many people before and after him would have acknowledged. And the tradition goes something like this. Kings and leaders were divinely appointed by God. And if they're divinely appointed by God, you better be careful how you handle them. Now, in the context of this passage, it's not necessarily a secular period of time. It's a period of time where God is calling people in community to follow Him. And basically, David is living in religious community. And in the context of that community, God has appointed certain leaders. And David says, I must respect those leaders. But wait a minute. David's being chased by Saul. Saul's tried to kill him. But yet he says, God's anointed will not be struck by me. You know, I think it's interesting that sort of well, elements of this still exist today. Have you ever noticed how a dictator or king who can be a hideous ruler is overthrown and then the nations of the world and sometimes the nation that overthrows him gives him exile? There's just this sort of common deference to authority. I'm not suggesting that that's an exact replica of what's going on here. It's just interesting. There's a certain deference that should be paid to the leader, according to David. There's another passage um, that reinforces this. It actually comes from Romans chapter 13. Instead of summarizing it, let me read it. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Well, let, me, let me back up and read that again in case you didn't hear it. There is no authority except what God has established. Let me put it another way. No authority exists except that God has allowed the authority to exist. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror over those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from the fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul, who are you talking about? Rome. Paul, who's the authority in Rome? Caesar. Paul, what does Caesar believe? Probably that he's God. Now try to unwrap that one, will you? I'm not going to unwrap it for you. It's a tight ball of perplexity. But it's something that we must hang on to. At some level, we are to respect the authority that God has appointed. And in some absolutely divine way that I do not understand, God has appointed all those in authority. Why is this a challenge? Let me suggest one way in which it's a challenge. We live in a democratic world. We don't know the first thing about monarchy because we've never experienced it. And in the context of this democratic world that we live in, it's real easy for us, my friends, to despise and disrespect authority because our guy is not in. Do you see any reason that you can disrespect authority in this text? Because he's not your guy? I don't understand exactly how to go about it. But I think the principle is universal. So be careful. Let me make it more specific. Before I do, let me suggest that I understand the dilemma, not just theoretically, but personally. I've been there multiple times where I don't respect the leader, but still somehow I'm called to respect him or her. So more particularly, maybe your life next week involves a scenario like this. It's not politics on the local, state, or national level. It's your boss. It's your professor that you have no respect for. What are you supposed to do? 
you're supposed to respect the person who's in authority and live faithfully according to your values. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But it's what you're called to do. Another way we might put this is tomorrow and the next day, don't let your righteous indignation eclipse God's righteous protocol. God calls you to respect your authorities. Hold on to your righteous indignation. Do what you have to do and let God do His work. So David refuses to strike out against God's anointed one. Second obvious point of the story and lesson is David has learned that God is the ultimate judge. In other words, he's saying in effect, it's not my job to take judgment into my own hands when I have Saul in front of me. That's God's job. Remember what he said? He said, either God will strike him, or his time will come, or he'll die in battle. You know what happened, right? He died in battle. You can't help but wonder when David said, God will strike him or his time will come. You can't help but wonder if he's thinking. We don't know that much about the chronology of the book, but the story that just precedes, precedes this is the story of Abigail and Nabal. Remember that? You got to wonder if David is speaking these words and he's got Nabal in his mind. Because God struck him, according to the text, and he died. David is saying, here lies the king in front of me. I could put him to death. I understand it. But God is the ultimate judge, and I will not step in and be that judge. Justice belongs to God, and I will instead turn my enemy over to God. I will not take justice into my own hands. Because, in effect, David says, God's judgments are infallible. And God's timing is perfect. Don't you worry about your judgments? I mean about your fallibility. I do. Don't you worry about your timing? You ought to. Because you're not infallible and your timing's not perfect. That category belongs to God alone. So be careful. God's judgment's infallible and his timing is perfect. Says David, I'll turn my enemies over to God. The third thing I learned from this story and from a lot of Psalms in, uh, that David wrote is that God doesn't, uh, David doesn't just turn justice over to God. He doesn't just refuse to slay God's anointed. He turns justice over to God, and then he calls on God to do the job. Now, that's kind of audacious, isn't it? Okay, God, it's your turn. Go do it. I'm turning them over to you. Strike them. But that's what he does. He does it routinely. Let me uh, read you a couple of those sections where he says words like that. Psalm 55, for one, beginning in verse 15. Speaking of his enemies, he says, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the grave. 
for evil finds lodging among them. But I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening and morning and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He ransoms me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even those, even though many oppose me. God is enthroned forever, will hear them and afflict them. Men who never change their ways and have no fear of God. Psalm 56, be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me all day long they press their attack. Doesn't that sound like where he is right now? Saul's after him. Perhaps. It's kind of hard to tell where he composes these, but I can imagine him composing some of these things in a cave. I'm running, God. Let me be honest. My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Psalm 58, do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge uprightly among men? No, says David. In your heart you devise injustice and your hands meet out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillfully the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanquish like water flows away. When they draw the bow... Let their arrows be blunted like a slug melting away as it moves along. (laughs) Great language. (laughs) Like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. God, I want to be honest. I'm being oppressed. And I want you to take care of it. There's some real raw honesty in what are often called the imprecatory psalms. Does it mean that every word that David uttered in his prayer was proper? No. But it's inspired. It's there for us to learn from. It's there for us to embrace in the larger context of Scripture. I'm reminded of an occasion where Peter, that vociferous, impetuous disciple, is with Jesus in the garden. And while Jesus is in the garden, they come to take him away. And Peter says, you're not going to do it on my watch. And he pulls out his sword and he strikes out and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus turns to him and says, put your sword away and get behind me, Satan. Oh, man, that must have been hard to hear. Get behind me, Satan. Is Peter Satan? No. Is it wrong to defend your Lord? No. What's going on here? Jesus is saying, you don't have the wisdom to see what's going on, Peter. The world is turning right here. This is a momentous event. On this occasion, I am about to be given over to the enemies of God. And it's the plan of God that I should die And in my death, evil 
will be vanquished. He didn't tell Peter all this. He didn't say, leave him alone. I'm going to rise again in three days. Leave him alone, Peter, because my rising as the king of glory of all the universe is just the tip of the iceberg because I'll come again and judge all wickedness eventually. It's part of a story, Peter. Stick your sword back in the sheath. What's the point? The point is you can be right and wrong at the same time. You can be righteous in your indignation and wrong according to God's plan. Because God's justice is absolutely infallible and God's timing is perfect and ours is not. So, what about the Psalms of David? Why does God let him say these things? There's some that are worse than the ones I just read. Because God lets us be who we are. He lets us express our frustration and our anger with injustice. But at the end of the day, like David, we're counseled to turn it over to him. Because we're not the judge. That's a hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It's one we always have to learn. (laughs) You'll never get it for the last time because it'll circle back around again and again and you'll be challenged. I close with this statement concerning Jesus who said pray for your enemies. I want to remind you of what Jesus was like in the face of sin and injustice. Here it is. Jesus named sin unequivocally. He did not dodge it. He did not pretend like it did not exist. He named it. And then Jesus loved the sinner. The one who sinned the sin that he named. And then Jesus warned of judgment that comes because of sin. He named the sin, he loved the sinner, and he warned of judgment. I was about to say, you think that's a good pattern? Kind of obvious, right? It comes from Jesus. So it should be our pattern, a hard one to embrace because righteous indignation takes over us like a disease and our judgment is clouded by our own sin. But the example of Jesus stands before us, the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. So simple suggestion, Monday's coming, follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you that you didn't clean it up. (laughs) You didn't edit out the, the tough parts. 
you didn't make David to be the saint that he was not. You let him speak his mind in the Psalms, even if, like Peter on occasion, his words were not appropriate. They were appropriate because they were prayed to you, and they're helpful because they're inspired for us. There's so many nuanced lessons to be learned in your word, Lord. Give us wisdom in the eyes of faith to see them and to apply them. We thank you for this man, David, who at times could be the great poet and songwriter of Israel, and at other times could be the most despicable of sinners. And on some days, Lord, we feel like we're the poet and we get self-righteous. On other days, you remind us that we're David the sinner in need of your grace. And on every day, Lord, no matter where we are, you call us to be like Jesus, to name the sin to love the sinner, and to warn about the judgment that comes from sin. We thank you for your grace, Lord. It's amazing. It's free. You've given it to us. Now help us to walk in it this week. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.